Rehabcast, the official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, is sponsored in part by Shepherd Center. My name is Zach Bradley. I'm a current employee and former patient of Shepherd Center, which specializes in medical treatment, research, and rehabilitation for people with spinal cord injury, brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, spine and chronic pain, and other neuromuscular conditions. Our specialized clinicians serve as complex care partners. They collaborate with medical professionals who refer their patients to Shepherd Center to help them achieve optimal outcomes, returning them to their homes, communities, schools, and workplaces. Learn more at shepherd.org. Welcome to the 38th episode of RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. This episode features rehab world takes and connections on a couple of the biggest social issues in America today. On the opioid epidemic, we look at it through the lens of the spinal cord injury population with Dr. Maria DePiro of the Department of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. Few issues are more complicated. And looking at it through the needs of this special population, I think helps add some important insight. Then we move from one societal hot topic to another. It seems like voting rights and access are in the news like no time ever before since perhaps the 1960s. With Mark Hirsch of Carolina's Rehabilitation, we'll look at the surprising number of questions that have long surrounded acquired brain injury and the vote. Dr. Hirsch and his team have taken a creative approach to exploring voting empowerment and participation after TBI. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have Dr. Nicole DePiro. Dr. DePiro is a research associate uh, in the Department of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, which is inside the College of Health Professions at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. DePiro and her uh, colleagues uh, there at MUSC uh, and in Winston-Salem have, have published um, uh, on opioid use among individuals with spinal cord injury prevalence estimates based on state prescription drug monitoring program data. So these PDMPs that increasingly virtually everyone is being required to use in the 50 states at this point, we're starting to get some interesting research results out of them. Dr. DePiro and her colleagues have a special interest in spinal cord injury, as we'll hear. Um, and uh, we're starting to, to learn some things about uh, broadly about the nature of different subpopulations, including those relevant to, to rehabilitation medicine. Dr. DePiro, thanks for joining us in the Rehabcast. Thank you very much for having me. So is this part of a, a general genre of, of research, as, uh, as I was kind of alluding to there, and, and how much of that research has been done in, in rehab in particular? I imagine quite a lot is coming out of, um, uh, as folks dig into PDMP records. This is actually one of the first times, to our knowledge, that we've used PDMP data to look at opioid prescriptions, specifically in spinal cord injury. Um, we, we know that there's a lot of research that's been done looking at self-report data. There are some other studies done outside of the United States looking at opioid use. Mm-hmm. But really, we don't have a lot of um, relevant state-based information looking at the actual prescriptions and the, the prescription records. I'm just curious, though, in the overall context of other medical conditions out there, uh, am, uh, am I right to assume that the, this work is being done generally for other populations? Or maybe rehab is the 
the leader in that. Yes. From my understanding, yes, we are starting to look at PDMP data and better understand opioid prescription rates in other populations. Now, of course, uh, spinal cord injury, uh, a lifelong condition uh, 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 that we have to uh, cope with, a chronic uh, condition that requires management among multiple different tracks. Um, and uh, certainly, if you're looking at some issues that may need long-term treatment, opioids traditionally a short-term measure, uh, you know, we're right to have some concerns there and be looking more, uh, uh, scrutinize this data a little bit more uh, closely. In order to do that, um, you guys were uh, kind of cross-referencing two different uh, databases. Um, uh, uh, Tell us about uh, uh, how that was done. Yes. So we have in the state of South Carolina, a kind of unique perspective where we have access to the South Carolina surveillance and registry system which is a statewide data set that is populated by the injury records and represents all incident cases of spinal cord injury in the state. And we've also had an interest um, more recently in trying to look at opioid prescriptions. And so we set out to link that data set, that um, SCI database to the scripts, which is our state's PDMP, to try and um, look at those individuals and assess among those with SCI how many prescriptions for opioids are being filled. Um, and so you're able to identify this. I'm not quite clear how you can uh, know for sure that you've got the same person in, in both databases or some type of unique identifier there. There is. And that was actually done kind of outside of our scope. That was done by the Scripps database um, by the people at DHEC who have done this before. They were the ones who looked at outside of our university level who looked at linking those identifiers and individuals and they sent the data set off to us for analysis. Okay, fascinating. So you're able to uh, dig in there uh, and got a, a pretty good cohort of people ultimately that you're certain you know had spinal cord injury and you're kind of looking into their second and third year after the injury survivors um, and their uh, opioid use and some other you know related potentially dangerous medications like benzodiazepine uh, use as well coincident with the with the opioid use. Um, and you get 269 folks uh, just just from South Carolina. Uh, so, so pretty good number there. Certainly, a lot of a lot of good information about what's happening in your, in your state with regards to this population. Do you think it's going to be that that's a, a large enough cohort from South Carolina to make some generalizability? You think nationally, what's going on? Well, we know that in South Carolina, we actually have higher rates and pretty high rates based on the data from the rest of the United States of opioid use. So, we think that it might be fair to generalize to the state of South Carolina, some other southeastern states. We're really not quite sure looking at other states. Um, I think there's definite need for continued research looking at other state PDMPs and looking um, just at a more national level, whether or not this is representative. Um, because we would like to think that it is. We looked at those who have a chronic SCI, those in years two and three post-injury. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is always that question of whether or not it does generalize outside of our state. Yeah. Okay. Well, we don't need to beat around the bush about the results. We can just kind of discuss them uh, generally. Um, uh, you know, amongst the, the highlights are that, indeed, more opioids are being prescribed to folks with spinal cord injury versus uh, the general uh, population. And then you have uh, some fascinating uh, uh, kind of uh, sub-cohorts to that with regards to uh, gender and uh, race and age group and, uh, and so forth. Um, not only are more prescriptions going out, but but higher MME potentially at a, at a dangerous level over over 50 uh, as well. Absolutely. Obviously, I'm sure that was your hypothesis uh, going in, and now we know for, for sure that that's, that's uh, what, what's happening. What are your thoughts about uh, that, that generally and what that means for the spinal cord population? 
really what we've come to find is we've done a lot of self-report data and we have our background in self-report assessments and asking individuals about their pain and what medications they use for pain. And this is our first look at real-time state-based PDMP data and trying to kind of verify some of the findings that we've looked at before. And ultimately, it kind of highlights that risk for these individuals. This population has a number of secondary health conditions. They are often, even though it's not recommended, um, they're often prescribed long-term chronic opioids. And as we found at higher rates than is recommended and for longer durations. Um, this is something that, you know, considering the opioid epidemic and the overall risks of long-term opioid use, we really want to kind of dive in and figure out why these individuals are on these chronic opioids. What are the side effects of these? Is this increasing the risk of opioid use disorders or misuse or adverse effects such as overdose and death? And that kind of ties into some of our other research and kind of points to you know, this real-time data that we can then build off of and, and further explore the, the real adverse effects and results of this type of opioid use. And certainly one great fear that would be, you know, that, you know, in general, perhaps, uh, is are opioids being used a lot as kind of a Band-Aid uh, for uh, issues that could be perhaps better handled through ongoing rehabilitation efforts and, and treatment, you know, staying plugged in to a variety of therapy and psychological services and perhaps more other, you know, creative uh, treatment uh, approaches, both physical modalities and different forms of, of medication approach or procedures. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's kind of where we're leading with this is what else can we do and how can we better this? Um, this maybe, maybe it's pain, maybe it's some other sort of treatment approach, but how can we improve this um, opioid use for individuals to, to try and look at other options and, and decrease costly and potentially risky opioid use. Now, this registry only has the controlled substances in it. Is, is that right? And, and therefore, are you able to, to tell what other types of, of pain medications folks might be on outside of opioids? So we, for this state database, our state PDMP, we look specifically at opioids and then we collected the data also on benzodiazepines, hypnotics, and sedatives. We mm -hmm. have self-report data that looks at over-the-counter prescription, uh, over-the-counter medications, some other prescriptions as well. And so we're the next phase of this is going to be trying to link um, this data that we've already kind of drawn from from PDMP with our self-report data to get a more complete picture of what individuals are reporting they're using versus what they are actually filling and what's shown in that PDMP. So we're, we're trying to get a complete picture. Um, and thus far, the only things that we've looked at from the PDMP are um, the medications that we've listed here in this paper. I wonder if you can do some analysis in terms of um, that, that helps you figure out, you know, are there related hospitalizations going on, you know, perhaps a new procedure that then generates a new opioid prescription, you know, things about perhaps uh, activity like changes in providers or, or provider activity where it seems like this person, you know, is receiving a variety of different edits uh, over time over the course of this year. Someone's clearly trying to work hard to maybe get them on or uh, well, get them off maybe or uh, utilize other medications or something versus others who are more static and, and so forth. You can kind of create with the limited information that you have in a PDMP, can you start to try to figure out, well, what's happening generally with these people? Yes, absolutely. And so part of the next phase, what we're hoping to do and what we can do with the data from the PDMP is look at that provider information. We also have access to hospitalization records oh, wow. and okay. death records. So we can we can take this data and link it to hospitalizations as well. And hopefully with the self-report that we're going to be sending out a little bit later this year as we begin this new study, we can start to really hone in on the participant perspective, 
what they are reporting. We can also link to hospitalizations. We can link to back to the PDMP to see if new prescriptions are coming out of this and kind of get a complete picture of, um, of what is happening and how these individuals are attaining the opioids and why they might be getting them. Now, in terms of race, gender, and age, is is what we're learning here, is this consistent with what is is known generally with regards to opioid use nationally? I'm, I have to confess I'm not up, up to date on it exactly. I feel like I've seen something to that effect. But, but in general, what we're seeing here is that um, uh, white patients are being prescribed um, more than, than minorities, women uh, more um, than men, uh, and generally uh, uh you know, increased rate for folks under 65 versus over. Is all that consistent? Or are there surprises there with what's happening in spinal cord injury versus elsewhere? It's mainly consistent. Um, honestly, we did not look too deeply into the race ethnicity component because we were confined by the data set. So we could only classify it as white versus non-white. Oh, okay. um, but we, um, yes, as far as uh, sex goes, we do know that women do typically have a greater number of opioid prescriptions and are at increased risk for some of these adverse outcomes. And I think part of the next step as we develop this um, line of research is to get more information about gender, injury level, race, ethnicity, and some other sociodemographic um, variables that might better explain this picture. And uh, you've you've mentioned uh, uh, the self-report aspect. Does that include some kind of general thoughts about, you know, uh, uh, patients themselves about how they feel that uh, they're they're being treated and what they're uh, being uh, how they're utilizing uh, opioids and and whether they are educated about other options or feel like they have access. You to know, that's them. you brought some good points there. Of what we're doing right now, what we have data on so far is more so kind of what are they taking pain medications for, and are they taking them as prescribed? So we can kind of get mm-hmm. at that misuse aspect. Um, but you bring up a good point, you know, do they have other options? And I think that's kind of where we need to start to ask more questions is, do you feel that this is your only option? Are you taking this because nothing else has worked? Or have you looked at other treatment modalities to try and improve whatever said outcome is that they're being treated with opioids for? Fascinating. Um, well, clearly, uh, we're about to learn a lot more as you as you delve in uh, to some of these aspects of different databases, in particular, I imagine those hospitalization records and, and so forth. So we should definitely... Look out to your research group to to learn more about uh, what's happening. And do you, do you have plans to, um, uh, you know, perhaps do uh, uh, kind of a, a more of a multi-state analysis partner with some other folks? I would absolutely love to. If we have researchers in other states or access to other PDMPs, it would be a great addition to the research. Um, I know in mm-hmm. other countries, like in Canada, they've done some research, but they have a better network of, of oh, data sure. so that they can do that a little bit more easily. We had to go through a number of different avenues here with our state DHEC um, to get access to that data. So I think with support, especially from surrounding states around South Carolina, if we could do North Carolina or Georgia, uh-huh. because some of these individuals might fill in those states if they were to cross borders or live outside the state for a period of time, we could get more complete picture, at least in the Southeast. Um, but then, yes, expanding across the country would be wonderful to get that that full picture of opioid use. Well, clearly a lot, a lot more than we need to, need to know, but this is uh, some, some uh, uh, really uh, a plethora of quality information here about what's happening in the spinal cord population, things that, that should raise, you know, clinicians' concern and, and awareness, perhaps uh, uh, patients and patient advocates uh, as well, making sure folks are getting the resources that, that they need. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it certainly would probably perhaps stand to reason, you know, the general population have, have a big injury, take some opioids and so forth. But uh, uh, as, we, as we know, 
uh, not an ideal lifelong solution if we want the life to be long um, uh, for a lot of problems um, and uh, uh, definitely right to be concerned about what we're seeing in this data thus far. So I uh, appreciate your, your time with us here today, Dr. DePiro. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Registration is now open for ACRM 2021. Registering for our virtual annual conference gives you access to the content for over six months. That's over 400 hours of CME CEUs. Go to acerm.org register to check out the growing online program and see all of our great registration options. Joining us now in the rehab cast is Dr. Mark Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is a senior scientist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Carolinas Rehabilitation, which is part of Atrium Health. Uh, also there, he is director of the Parkinsonism and Related Disorders Lab. Uh, he holds academic affiliations with Wake Forest School of Medicine. Dr. Hirsch, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here, Ford, really, uh, Dr. Vox. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm glad to be here. Well, I, I'm glad to have you here about this subject in particular because I, I think it's probably, you know, maybe a, a burning question for many people, maybe patients and families. And uh, generally, I mean, society might have questions uh, about the role of folks with various disabilities and in voting and, and that type of thing. And so uh, this paper that we're discussing today uh, probably is going to uh, uh, clear up a lot of misconceptions for people, perhaps. And uh, and you guys are starting to, uh, you know, kind of gather some some data around this question, which which does need to be answered. And I understand it's uh, uh, an ongoing effort as well. We'll talk about that. Uh, to start with the beginning, uh, everyone, the, the paper is titled Qualitative Examination of Voting Empowerment and Participation Among People Living with traumatic brain injury. And there's also a, a, a related uh, information education page uh, for patients and families themselves. Uh, it's a team effort, as are uh, most of these uh, papers, and uh, Mark, you're a critical part of that team and uh, vocalizing the paper for us uh, here today. And I see um, uh, you did some of the original work that uh, this was based on, uh, uh, a, a smaller case steer- series to, to begin with. Is that my correct understanding, perhaps? Uh, yes, actually, that is okay. completely correct. Um, but I, is it would it be okay if I just gave a little bit of background on how this whole thing came about? Because that's not in the paper, and I think that might interest it your certainly listeners. Would. Yeah, let's find out. Um, so, this the idea to study the relationship between voting and traumatic brain injury was uh, wasn't my idea. It was mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Flora Hammond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she was with us at Carolinas at the time as the research director. And uh, one day she came into my office and um, gave me a, a paper on uh, voting and disabilities and uh, written by Jason Carlewish from the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And um, she said, wow, this is an interesting idea. We should do something on this and look at this in the context of traumatic brain injury. Was he looking at dementias in particular? Exactly. He was studying competency to vote and competency and also in a larger context for um, uh, enrollment into clinical trials by people with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So he was an expert in that area. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, he happened to develop an objective tool to measure the competency 
to uh, vote called the competency assessment tool for voting, and which has been validated in uh, different uh, uh, populations, including Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and now also in traumatic brain injury, which was a part of our study. But anyway, um, you know, I looked at the paper and uh, one thing led to another and we developed a field initiated grant and submitted that to uh, NIDLR. Um, that got, did not get funded. And we, so we essentially we um, regrouped and uh, we decided to apply for a pilot grant through Atrium Health, which was approved. Because we said, if we can get a pilot, maybe we can strengthen Mm -hmm. the grant application moving forward. So the pilot was approved. And at the same time, in parallel, I developed uh, an NIH application, an R21, to the National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development and National Institute of Mental Health. Then their um, request for applications under their funding mechanism titled Community Participation in Research. And this was back in 2007, Mm -hmm. relatively new that people with disabilities were participating in research as engaged co-researchers, so participatory action research. So we submitted the R21. Oh, and I forgot to mention that um, I was invited to go as an heiress um, applicant, Enhancing Rehabilitation Research in the South, the NIH Grant Writing Workshop, uh, that I think it's called TIGER currently, and it's the heiress um, that uh, I got a lot of great feedback uh, from them during a three-day workshop. So that kind of helps refine proposals to make it more likely you're going to get the grant. Exactly. And so I rewrote the grants and um, the uh, the design that we used was a qualitative design as opposed to a quantitative design, which we had used for the Nidler study, uh, the Nidler application. And uh, so it was a qualitative uh, research design with a participatory action research component. And um, I didn't want to jinx myself. So I essentially didn't call NIH up. I, you know, after the funding deadline, you know, after the review deadline was over, I didn't want to jinx myself. So I didn't call them. It's kind of an old belief among scientists. Don't call because they might say no. Sure. Okay. And so, you know, a couple of weeks went by. And so after maybe three weeks or four weeks, I got kind of nervous. And I said, you know, maybe they've forgotten about me. And I called up the program officer, Beth Ansel, um, and uh, she said to me, oh, you didn't hear? You got funded. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. So it got funded on the first try, Okay. which is almost unheard of in the world of you know, NIH. Well, now I'm genuinely curious. Is there a problem with your email address or what was going on? There? No, it was just, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they had just, Okay. it was miscommunication, I guess. Lesson learned, no, no harm done, and, and following up after a few weeks. Exactly, and it was funded. It was funded at the full, uh-huh. at the full level. There was no, you know, no reduction or anything. And it, you know, they loved the grant. Yeah. I got, you know, yeah. incredible reviews. So it, essentially, when we had the R twenty one funding from NIH, we started our mm-hmm. pilot. And um, I'd also like to to just acknowledge all of the individuals who were involved in the study, and I couldn't have done it without them. In fact, uh, I reached out to uh, all of the 
the kind of the world's experts on voting and disabilities, and most of them are residing mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, and I, I essentially, I summarized uh, the idea to them for a study, a multi-site study. And um, to my surprise, all of them said, we'd love to participate. So essentially, I had this incredible team to work with uh, around the United States. And of course, our wonderful research team here at Carolinas and the TBI model systems sort of in my back, you know, in my backyard and had that that tradition and, and able to enroll from them and, and also draw on all of that expertise. So I'd just like to acknowledge, I, I've already acknowledged Dr. Hammond, Flora Hammond. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Dr. Martha Kropf from UNCC. Mm-hmm. She's a political scientist and a well-known expert on voting and voting sure rights. This might, be the first, this might be the first rehabilitation study I've, I've heard of involving a political scientist. That's for great. sure, for sure. And, 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 you know, just to be fair, I'm not an expert in political science, um, certainly not. And I learned a great deal from this study about, you know, how our system works and how important it is for people with disabilities to be involved in political participation, voting being one of the simplest forms. But I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Douglas, Dr. Douglas Cruz and Dr. Lisa Shore from Rutgers University. They're with the School mm-hmm. of Management and Labor Relations and the Department of Labor Studies and Employment Relations at Rutgers. And they're both uh, just incredible scholars and researchers in the area of disability and voting. And I'd also like to acknowledge uh, our partners on the study who were on the Community Advisory Board, because as I said, this was a participatory action research study, and the Community Advisory Board helped us actually run the study. And so we had representatives from the League of Women Voters of North Carolina. We also partnered with the Mecklenburg County Board of Elections and uh, an organization called Disability Rights and Resources and the Programs for Accessible Living. So all in all, this was a a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary study with significant, you know, participation from all of these partners without which we couldn't have done the study. And last but not least, I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Christine Davis from UNC Charlotte. She, Mm -hmm. Dr. Davis is a professor of communication studies and an expert in participatory research and qualitative research design, and she served as our external methodological consultant on the study. Uh, And yeah, very interdisciplinary research um, and multifaceted uh, in terms of that design. Uh, Rather rather complex, but it's a type of kind of bigger social uh, issue, you know, drawing from, you know, these other fields that, uh, and so therefore, you know, the research design is perhaps a a little bit different than what we see. I mean, certainly when it comes to to effectively like poll watching, you know, going out there to uh, see folks vote and everything. Absolutely fascinating in that regard. Yeah, we talk in rehab a lot about being interdisciplinary, but this is interdisciplinary at another level, like literally uh, different, you know, academic departments across campus and so forth. And uh, uh, obviously, you know, um, around the country and everything. And it's it's fascinating to to see, I mean, I think um, in terms of uh, what we're talking about, looking at folks from other areas of kind of the arts and sciences and so forth, you certainly see can see economists involved in uh, rehabilitation research. Um, I've seen that on, on occasion, but but these are definitely uh, in terms of uh, labor and uh, political science and everything, some kind of new 
uh, folks to, to draw in. And it's kind of fascinating to, to see. So it sounds like that was a good experience for you and, and you learned a lot. Absolutely. And that's what participatory research is all about. It's, you know, it's bringing people to the table from different areas of, of life and different expertises, people who usually don't talk to each other mm-hmm. directly. And you're bringing them to the table and that conversation informs your science and makes your study more rigorous. And really, that's something that I learned um, that I had to learn also because I'm, I'm not trained in qualitative research necessarily. I'm, my background's more in neurophysiology, but now I have this qualitative mm-hmm. toolbox to fall back on. And I feel more well-rounded as a scientist, I must say. But really bringing all these voices together at, on one table uh, in, in terms of collaboration in terms of lifting your science up to a higher level and really trying to give equal voice to all of those uh, voices is, is it's an art and a science. Yeah. Well, describe for our audience then about kind of the general research design. As I mentioned, pre-sage, it's, 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 it's complex, um, right. but it does, does involve uh, the participatory angle. Uh, we've got uh, folks, uh, survivors, their families, mm-hmm. uh, uh, folks in the, in the community and so forth. Um, uh, we uh, certainly have a, a model of uh, kind of structured interviews and so forth to gather information about folks' voting experience. I understand it involved a few election cycles. I see 2006, 2008 um, mentioned in, in particular. And there's even this component of, of in some cases, actually going out uh, and observing the, the voting, seeing what some of those barriers are um, uh, as, as succinctly as you can, I suppose. Sure. To describe to us how, how this is accomplished. So this. Uh, the goals of the study were uh, to describe the experience of uh, voting um, during the 2007 um, general elections and the 2008 presidential election uh, during uh, that was Obama's first election mm-hmm. and using a community-based participatory research approach. Uh, the stakeholders were uh uh, people, uh, adults with TBI who were registered to vote and who were at least six months post-injury, uh, um, uh, family members of individuals with TBI, uh, as well as poll workers um, and healthcare professionals who care for people with traumatic brain injury. So we were out to look at the experience, that is, thoughts, their thoughts and feelings regarding voting and political participation. We were also, uh, another aim was to assess the perceptions of individuals with TBI regarding their capacity to vote. Mm. And also uh, the perception of the other stakeholders, family members, uh, et cetera, healthcare professionals of the person with TBI's capacity uh, to vote. And so uh, essentially we, collected uh, data during three election cycles, uh, May and November of 2007, and then during the presidential election of 2008. And essentially we followed um, people with TBI to the polls. Um, We interviewed them about their experience with voting at the polls, prospectively at the poll, uh, actually outside of the polling station. Uh, in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. And we also um, accompanied them into the poll to observe what was going on as they were voting. Mm. 
So, and so you had to coordinate with the election board to do that? Correct. We had to get permission to conduct our, our interviews. Um, and this was in full, we had the, the full board uh, of Mecklenburg County vote on this. And there was a lot of public discussion about it, which in and of itself was an experience. I bet, yeah. It was, um, but we got them uh, hands down. Um, they were, you know, it was a unanimous vote to let us go forward with the study. Mm-hmm. So as, essentially we, um, we collected the, uh, you know, we had the interview data, we used an interview, uh, a script, um, and um, we, uh, uh, we transcribed the script uh, from digital uh, interview to a written transcript. And then we used uh, grounded theory and uh, symbolic interactionism to uh, develop, uh, to code the, um, the transcripts line by line, of which there were about 1,500 pages worth of transcripts, because we had uh, developed, designed the study more with a quanti- from a quantitative perspective. I think I mentioned to you that my background's in you know, neurophysiology and we're thinking more quantitatively, the more I have, the better. So we enrolled, you know, 54, uh, we ended up interviewing 54 adults with TBI, 21 family members and seven informants, 82 in total, where we could have probably interviewed half that many and maybe we would have gotten the same results and a lot less work. But in, in any event, it's the largest study that's ever been conducted on the experience of voting in a specific uh population of people with disabilities, uh, traumatic brain injury. Uh, both folks with uh, mild, uh, m- mainly mild, uh, some more uh, with moderate impairment. Uh, I understand none with severe impairment in this particular study, and uh, we could perhaps speculate about what the changes might might be or the extra challenges, but it, you do capture both folks' kind of expectations uh, about what their challenges are going to be and then concretely kind of what those challenges actually were um, and and then differences between the uh, the folks with TBI themselves and then what their their families might might have expected obviously there's there's a lot of information here we can't go through it at all but what for you what are some of the highlights of of each of those like what are some of expectations versus reality perhaps that uh, that, that patients and families uh, saw? Right. So again, as you already alluded to, the paper in archives is part of a larger mm-hmm. project on the relationship between voting and political and, and traumatic brain injury. So there were three studies that were conducted, two were quantitative, and this is the qualitative mm-hmm. arm. And essentially, we discovered four themes uh, distilled from um, what the uh, adults with TBI and the other stakeholders told about their experience with voting. And theme number one was that there are barriers to voting uh, that people with traumatic brain injury encounter, um, mostly at the Mm -hmm. polls. And the greatest barrier is actually stigmatization. Mm -hmm. Uh, People feel like um, they're, because they might slur speech or not think as quickly or respond as quickly, um, to questions about where they live and what their address is, or maybe they're swaying a bit and appearing uh, unsteady or quote-unquote mm. drunk. There might be some stigmatization there that is keeping people from going to the polls. 
And in fact, um, if research has shown that if people expect to have problems at the polls, even if there are no problems in reality, they're less likely to actually go and vote. So that's a very real uh, kind of result that we take extremely seriously. But it's also a very difficult thing to sort of correct because stigma at the societal level, I think, will take a real culture change uh, to change around. So that was that was theme mm-hmm. number one. Theme number two, uh, the voting process can be improved. So as part of our, our, um, our, our interview, we asked for um, suggestions on how to improve the process of voting. And what they told, what the participants told us was to provide help understanding uh, the candidates and their platforms, to provide help reading and understanding the ballot or the machine, to provide special areas with more room, to provide transportation and convenient locations to vote. And I'd like to come back to that point if we talk about uh, areas for future research, to make uh, the process of voting less confusing. It seems to be very complex, very involved, and not straightforward. To help uh, the individual at the polls make a choice. And on that point, um, it is um, per policy, it is okay to bring a person of your choice to the polls with you to have them help you in the voting booth. And uh, that person can talk to you about the I'm candidates. sure a lot of people don't a know. A lot of people yeah. don't know yeah. about that. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then to make the ballots easier to see, easier to scan, easier mm-hmm. to read. So those are some of the... the um, Uh, the suggestions that we received on the process of voting. And then the third theme was that uh, participants felt that voting is a right and a responsibility that we have as citizens. So it's not something that we should take lightly. It's something, it's a way of belonging to society, a way of connecting to society. And voting actually has real outcomes, health outcomes for us. Um, There's been research to show that people who vote on a regular basis tend to be healthier over the long run. And people who are healthier tend to vote over the long run. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg kind of a question, but there is a relationship between voting because when you vote, you vote for people who represent your beliefs and what's important to you. And if those people are elected, you're more likely to receive the benefits that you need Mm -hmm. as a population. So it's terribly important. Uh, It's a terribly important way to create a future for yourself, which is another thing that we've heard again and again. And it's a right. It's my right to vote as a citizen. And it's something that I need to take very seriously. And the fourth uh, theme is that voting gives us voice. Um, very often, and we, we know this as rehabilitation professionals, um, people with disabilities can be marginalized because they have a disability. And another way of being marginalized is not having a voice in our democracy, not having a say in who's running things. So this is a very important opportunity. Um, And it's also important that uh, family members 
support their loved ones as much as possible to uh, to go and vote. And if they don't want to vote, that's okay. But not to keep them from voting if that's something that they wish to do. Uh, and that and that has happened on on occasion, uh, certainly, uh, where uh, families have felt perhaps maybe in the best interest of their loved one, you don't need to bother with this or, or so forth. But but uh, um, uh, I think and perhaps that that is part of perhaps this whole idea of we're used to throughout rehabilitation for folks with any type of intellectual disability and so forth. We're kind of clearing people, giving them permission to do X, Y, or Z. This is something that doesn't really require clearance per se. I mean, we all have this uh, inalienable right to vote kind of regardless of exactly what your mini mental status score is, correct? True. But we should also say, uh, and in regards to your mini mental status uh, comment, we should also say that there is research that shows that uh, nursing home inhabitants are sometimes kept from voting because the staff are making subjective Mm -hmm. Uh, decisions that that person probably can't mm-hmm. vote, and so that person's ballot goes in the trash can. And there's there's been research to look into this. It's sort of scandalous, yeah. if you will, but that is a, a part of the problem. Is that the uh, the uh, caste system that we've developed in medicine is that um, we we do things to people as opposed to with them. We see um, we see patients as sort of a, it's a one down kind of situation where I'm the physician and you're Joe, and it puts people in a one down position. It's a it has to do with power. It has to do with the structure of how medicine is structured, and I think what we're saying with this study is that we need to have a little bit more of an equal playing field where patients and providers are making decisions that are shared and uh, where there's greater collaboration between patients, providers, and scientists, as specifically in the area of, of voting. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's fascinating, and in particular, to think about um, the, the genesis of, of this study and its design and everything and, uh, and looking at that data and so forth, and then knowing about everything that has happened since in, in American democracy, since that quaint era of right. 2008 uh, in particular. And here and here we are um, dealing actually uh, at a larger societal level right now with a lot of these same issues with access to voting and everything for kind of the population at large and huge minority groups and socioeconomic strata and different neighborhoods and so forth. And um, and, 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 and this study actually speaks to a lot of those issues and microcosm with regards to this uh, rehabilitation population. But uh, I, I'm sure you right. reflected on that a little bit. Absolutely. I, I think, in my opinion, uh, uh, being able to vote, uh, being able to participate in politics uh, should be a rehabilitation outcome. Mm-hmm. Because if we think about it, um, the folks that go through our rehab hospitals, they're all advocates for rehabilitation. They're the perfect advocates, if you will, because they've gone through a high quality rehabilitation experience, which has restored their quality of life. So why wouldn't you want to advocate for the population as a whole to receive those kinds of those services and benefits? And so I think 
every time we, we if we foc- if we don't focus on voting and political participation, it's a missed opportunity really to change policy on a larger level because really what we need is for the population as a whole to get up and to march on Washington, D.C. and let their voices be heard instead of having only a few individuals raise their voices. And I think voting is one way in which the entire population can make their voice heard. Mm -hmm. And so it's terribly important to understand what the barriers are, how people become enfranchised, how they become disenfranchised from voting, and to try to make our society as democratic as possible. Because I think what what you'll find if you think about this problem a little bit more is we're getting more and more away from a democratic society. Mm. Um, I think, I believe, uh, at least in the last eight years, if not longer, we've been moving away from shared decision-making and we've become more uh, a society that's autocratic. So I think it's terribly important um, that we give people with disabilities who are, by by, uh, the way, the largest block of voters in this country, uh, a voice and, and and will be getting larger as, as we recognize the aging of the American population. Exactly. And along with aging goes decline in physical functioning, decline in cognitive functioning. And that, that brings up some yeah. fascinating points. Uh, for example, close elections have been won by statistical, statistically virtual ties. If you look at uh, the Gore versus um, Bush election of 2000, that came down to a few votes in Florida. And if you look at, the, uh, for example, the demographics in Florida, roughly 18 to 20% are 65 plus. That's going to be the demographic in every state in our country uh, by 2023. Um, and if you see that there are more cognitive impairment, there's more cognitive impairment as we get older, it begs the question, who's making the decision about the future of mm-hmm. our nation and what kind of a capacity does a person have to have to make those kinds of decisions. So that's where the competency assessment tool for voting comes in, which is a, basically a standardized research tool right now to look at what a person ought to know about how government works um, in different populations. Um, and also, uh, the research that we did on, uh, what people know about how government works by administering the naturalization Mm -hmm. exam to, we administered it to college students and to people with TBI. And we were very surprised that we found very similar results, very similar results. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that, uh, college students who had just completed a political science course know so little about how the government works, but they don't know more than a person with traumatic brain yeah. injury. Uh, that's fascinating at many, many levels. Um, well, educate me on one aspect of this. Um, is there a legal process other than committing a felony, uh, which I'm aware of, through which your uh, right to vote is rescinded? And why would that even be a, a question in, in a particular case? I'm just not familiar with, with why that would come up, uh, and whether it's someone with with flat out uh, dementia or, or more significant brain injuries where, you know, a person might legitimately have a question uh, about that. Um, but 
that's not really been a major societal legal concern, um, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, what is the status of that? I believe the American Bar Association released a statement saying that anyone who, any citizen uh, who's registered to vote, who wants to vote, should mm -hmm. be able to do so. Um, I know that if you're under guardianship, there are several states in which you are not permitted mm -hmm. to vote, but it's not across the board in all 50 states. So there are some states where you can, some states where you can't. If you're a felon, obviously you can't vote. Uh, obviously, I guess I say that in question marks because I'm not really sure whether that's a good idea. Yeah, and it can be given back, and that, I think that varies state by state as well. Because, and the reason I'm saying that is, is because you have to look at who are the felons. Yeah, and uh, this has been looked at um, in terms of uh, people who are of voting registered to vote or voting age. Most states, the felons are African Americans, mm -hmm. right? And in, at any given time between 0% and 30% of the state's registered voters are African-Americans who are imprisoned. I mean, let that sink in. Yeah. You know, that's terrible. And obviously, often and often times uh, involving criminal acts for, for which uh, folks of other uh, races or socioeconomic strata might not have been so vigorously prosecuted or that increasingly aren't even illegal, uh, such as, you know, marijuana possession. So. Correct. But um, to your to your point, um, I, I'm not aware of, of any policies, specific policies other than what I've talked about. But, you know, there are um, there are there's language in some of the state's um, uh, legislation um, that um, people who are idiots or people who are insane or crazy are not to vote. And if taken literally, that could really bar literally millions of people with cognitive impairment from voting, if that were to be taken literally. So um, some elements of the question, perhaps uh, unanswered to, to some extent, we have kind of a, a baseline expectation at this point in time in society that folks of uh, you don't need to pass a particular, you know, poll test to, to vote of, you know, whether, you know, it's facts about American um, uh, uh, government and, and so forth, uh, uh, certainly not any cognitive tests. Perhaps in individual cases, uh, these issues uh, will will arise. But the, broad, the broader issue is that plenty of people, uh, perhaps millions of people, um, uh, but uh, large numbers of people are, to some extent, disenfranchised uh, through um, these, this kind of, uh, benign or intentional neglect of the structure of the system, um, kind of from expectations, perhaps from everyone, including clinicians and families and folks around them, or just lack of access, folks who otherwise should have access mm -hmm. to voting. Patients who have a positive rehab outcome tend to become advocates and mm -hmm. tend to become more politically involved. So I think, again, it's important that we consider, you know, these, kind of social determinants of health, where voting would be, fall under uh, um, that kind of a heading. Um, so it's, it's terribly important that we, we, we try to improve people's function in our rehab stays to make them advocates and to get them involved 
politically. But let me let me just ask again you a question, and that is what should the litmus test be for mm-hmm. voting? What do you think? How where should we go? Where should we draw the line? I feel like this is not the correct American moment to ask that that question because everything is so insane right now um, amongst because there are people out there who are apparently you know uh, asking quite basic or questions uh, about um, huge segments of the society's ability to access. I mean, we had we just went through well when we're still going through. I mean, this pandemic. And somehow it became a political question of, of voting by mail right. um, as, as if uh, that wasn't blatantly obvious that we should encourage um, mm-hmm. uh, voting by mail. And, and that became a political hot topic. It's just it's it's mind boggling. Um, so I, I would say right now, um, uh, apparently we we can't be trusted uh, to, uh, um, you, you know, uh, to, to debate quite a lot of questions that ought to be debated at a, at a national level. Uh, I can only hope things are going to calm down um, soon. Uh, you and me, brother. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, a good conversation with you there, uh, Mark, and I, I encourage everyone to take a look at the paper, the series of papers, um, as well as the uh, information education page, which uh, by all means can be um, rehab centers can uh, print out and distribute uh, for patients as well, and their families would be good for folks to see. And uh, I'm certain there'll be there'll be more forthcoming from your your team on this topic. Is that correct? I hope so, because I think this is a, a very pressing issue, as you already said, given the political situation uh, currently. Yeah. Um, so one idea that that we would like to explore is whether um, voting at a hospital as a mobile mm. polling makes a difference in the experience mm-hmm. that you have to vote. Um, and it, it would be, it wouldn't be difficult to have sort of a cluster kind of a study where you have clusters where you're voting at the hospital and other clusters where people are voting in elsewhere in the community and to compare mm-hmm. their experiences. And I think that is, that is an idea that the, uh, the board of elections are very interested in because not only are millions of Americans spending the elections in the hospital, there are a lot of voters who are in the sure. hospital who aren't voting and whose voices aren't being heard, but it's also it's also an idea um, that's relatively easy to implement because the, uh, Mecklen- the uh, Board of Elections can choose the polling places. They can uh, okay. partner with rehab hospitals and set up a mulling mobile polling station in a very yeah. short period of time. Well, you know, hopefully that would have a, that would be an idea that, that could gain traction even in the, in the current uh, era to my, to my knowledge, the hospital admissions processes and the ERs aren't, aren't uh, checking um, uh, party registration uh, prior to admission. So that should be an opportunity that's equal to all. By the way, you bring up party uh, affiliation. Oh yeah. That yeah. is um, searchable information, which is open to the public. For example, mm-hmm. I could theoretically mm-hmm. uh, search your name on the wherever wherever county you vote in, and uh, I assume you're in Atlanta. I could probably search your name on the Board of Elections. Uh, there's a website, and it would come up with your voting record. Yeah, because all of this information is stored by 
you know, address and name. Um, and it would be actually it would be fascinating to to uh, to see whether uh, people with TBI who voted in past elections are more likely to vote in future elections. Mm -hmm. And also maybe to, uh, yeah, when you think about the intersection of political science and rehabilitation questions and so forth, do uh, political affiliations change uh, after life-changing events and, and right. so forth? Um, and and uh, same thing with families and so forth. But um, yeah, uh, a lot that, that can can be explored in, in this in this area, and few few things more important in American society right now than than these questions surrounding access and participation in democracy and the health of democracy generally. And I think um, there's a lot lot that uh, rehabilitation can contribute to that right. conversation. And how how candidates pick or how uh, people pick candidates is is a a, a niche area within political science. Mm. itself um there's been some studies to suggest that uh the um that a lot of this is regulated by dopaminergic um synapses in the brain mm -hmm. in terms of risk taking and risk aversion and so there are some uh, uh political scientists who have shown that um you vote based on your brain anatomy and it has very little to do with mm -hmm. your political beliefs. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating area. Yeah. Uh, and many potential parallels to, to what we do in rehabilitation or can understand about the, the human brain and so forth. So um, fruitful area that I'm sure will be explored for decades hence. Um, and uh, uh, this, this paper, I would, I would say, uh, is going to get a lot of future citation in that, in that region. So uh, congrats on the great work and fascinating conversation. Um, and, you know, it's a good conversation. It's usually a good paper. So I encourage good folks to check it out. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And that's it for this 38th episode of the Rehab Cast. Don't miss the 2021 Annual Conference online from September 26th through 29th. Tune in next month and please share the podcast with your colleagues.